Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out the radio version of the show every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on WDJY 99.1 in Atlanta. We also air on a podcasting network in Los Angeles called the 405 Media. There's a TV version of the show that airs on KMVT 15 in Silicon Valley at 8 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday nights. Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Ariella Lairher. She's the CEO of Legacy Games and the president of Hitpoint Studios. Ariella, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think, obviously, you've done a ton of really cool things in, in your career, and you are continually doing some really cool things. And, and I really want to kind of dive into that stuff later. But maybe before we kind of start into that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. I grew up in central Pennsylvania okay. in York County, uh, okay. next to the Amish. Oh, interesting. How, mm-hmm. how, but you weren't Amish, correct? No, I am not Amish, but okay. uh, the Amish and Mennonite went to my school, some of them. Oh, interesting. Okay, very cool. So you walk me through how you, you kind of got passionate about kind of the arts and was there like a defining moment that you kind of wanted to go into kind of technology? I, I know you, you went to university and, and you took kind of a Bachelor of Arts Psychology, correct? Correct. I had a uh, an undergraduate major in psychology okay. and um, decided I wanted to go to graduate school. Okay. Studied cognitive psychology at Claremont, at the Claremont Colleges okay. uh, in Southern California and uh, the problem was at that time, about 30 years ago, cognitive psychologists just went into academia, and that was not what I wanted to do. So I loved the study of perception and memory and attention and thinking, but I didn't love the idea of uh, spending my life, the rest of my life, in a lab. Okay. So I wanted to figure out a way to apply that educational background and that's sort of when I hit on uh, educational software which is where I started my career. Okay so was there were you interested in kind of software like growing up or or psychology like how did you kind of get into that and want to take that in school? That's a really good question I mean I I honestly started out in clinical psychology because back then that was the best-known field or branch of psychology, but, you know, there are a hundred, hundreds of branches of psychology, which I didn't know about as a kid. It turns out that I don't really have the personality to be a clinical psychologist, Um, and I discovered that early on. You know, partly it was I just wasn't sure of what I was saying to people. It felt like this awesome responsibility, and what if I, you know take them in the wrong direction. So I decided I'm much more, uh, I'm much more interested and comfortable with the more sort of theoretical academic, you know, uh, uh, fields. So that's, so that was after some trial and error. That's how I ended up in graduate school in cognitive psychology. Then for my PhD uh, dissertation, I studied how children process information, how they remember and understand a story presented in different media. I mean, this was the era of Marshall McLuhan, right? The medium is the message. Sure. So we had a a story that was a video story, a story that was a a text story with pictures, and then an audio-only story, and looked at uh, memory and comprehension uh, for those three situations with those three variables. And I thought oh, I really want to add interactive here. Okay, <laughs> But at that time, yeah, but at that time, you know, it was really at the beginning of Commodore 64. And, sure. you know, there just, it just wasn't out there enough. So I ended up not studying that medium, but realized that 
that was the medium I wanted to focus on. Um, so then after graduate school, I went to Jerry Brown, who okay. was at that time, uh, he had just finished the first, his first eight years as governor of California. And he started because Jerry Brown, for as much as you want to say about it, he is a very far-sighted person. Okay. And he started two foundations in educational technology. Okay. And again, this is back almost 30 years ago. Sure. And so I joined him and uh, studied policy issues related to introducing computers in schools. And oh, just really, that was the launch of, that really was the launch of my career. Wow, that's, that's really cool. So walk me through kind of your journey up until you became CEO of Legacy Games. Well, starting a new business. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's a because because Legacy Games is almost I, twenty years old, correct? Right, and before that, I had two other companies. Okay, so so when when I first started out, I well, this is this is just a truism. When something is so new, sort of like AR and VR yeah. are now, yeah, you can be an instant expert even sure. if you don't know very much, right? Sure, because you know a little bit more than everybody else, so therefore you're the expert. Well, it was like that back then with uh, educational software. Okay. Nobody knew anything. This was the days of uh, Jan Davidson put Math Blaster in Ziploc bags. I, I and remember sold them that game. Radio Shack. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that playing that growing up. To be, no, like yes. that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so reader, rabbit. These. So, Nobody knew anything, and it was really uh, fun. It was, you know, it was just a, a fun area. So I started a consulting business, okay. and um, I worked for SoftCat. Some people may re remember that company. They were the first. They only sold educational software. Sure. And they were a distributor based in Southern California, so they were one of my clients, and I consulted with them on what products they picked up. I consulted with the learning company. I worked on uh, MathRabbit, Robot Odyssey, some of those great early titles. Yeah, I remember those. Interesting. Um, that's, that's crazy because I remember playing those as a kid. Yeah, exactly. So those. So I was a consultant. I think I was a consultant for about five years. Okay. And I had a great business. I mean, gosh, I, we, I consulted for Disney. I consulted for Commodore. And mostly it was... Uh, software design, but it was also, you know, distribution issues, marketing issues. So, you know, I really, uh, and then when I worked for the distributor, I really was really at the nexus of this fledgling industry because the distributor, you know, has relationships with publishers and with dealers who are selling it. And so, I got to know everybody in the in the whole, you know, as they say, vertically integrated in a, in the whole channel, and uh, it was just a great learning, a place to learn as much as you could. Um, and after about five years, I made the mistake that almost all consultants make, which is, oh, this looks easy, I can do this, <laughs> and that's when I <laughs> and that's when I started my own uh, software business, my first software company. Um, so that, that was, yeah, however many years ago, I don't even remember. Sure. We, uh, I, I partnered with a couple of other people, some, uh, programmers and a teacher and our first product out the gate was a children's writing and publishing center, Okay. which was, uh, you know, I think it was sold to every school in the country, practically. It was really a print shop for kids. Okay, interesting. And the, and the, the learning company was our publisher, and uh, it was just a huge success, and, and that was quite heady. You know, it's like a gambler who goes to Las Vegas and hits the million-dollar jackpot the first time he plays the slot. Sure, you know, sure. That's what it, it was like, oh, my God, now I have to do this the rest of my life. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always looking for that hit, that big hit, that high. Fair enough. That, uh, so, yeah, so then that was my first company called Legacy Software. Okay, interesting. Um, 
Yeah, so that was uh, that company, and we went on to make products for Disney. Um, because I was a, uh, trained as a cognitive psychologist, I was always very interested in more open-ended types of kids' games, One ones where they could really be active learners and sure. help construct the information that they were learning, you know, just... So therefore, I always love simulations. I always love tools. And most of the products we've made for kids have been in that category that, you know, you'd say it's a sort of a constructivist notion of how kids learn. So we made the Children's Writing and Publishing Center. Then for Disney, we made uh, Mickey's Crossword Puzzle Maker. Uh, the thing that sort of killed that company, though, then again, I made a a very critical and common mistake that entrepreneurs make. We had such success with these first couple products that I said, Oh, we can make our, we can make our own characters. We can create our own IP. (laughs) We can do X, Y, and Z, which we weren't any good at. So, uh, you know, having the aspiration to be the next Disney. And so we created these characters called the mutinoids, which, are just as weird as it sounds, and uh, <laughs> the math and, and language arts products were, I mean, the design, I think, was really very forward-thinking and also part of this, you know, open-ended, constructivist design philosophy, but the characters were just awful, and uh, so after that, we decided we had to, we had to move on and uh, do something else, so... The next chapter of that company was um, we started to, we got a contract with IBM. Okay. And at that time, IBM was very interested in the consumer market. So this was, you know, their computer was a big deal in the consumer market, and they wanted to be a big software publisher in the space. And so we created for them a game called Emergency Room. Okay, sure. Which was our, our concept. And this was really the first, um, you know, sort of serious medical simulation out there. Uh, we worked with an ER doctor. We put together, I think there were 400 different cases. Wow. And it was, it was a terrific uh, product. It wasn't terribly gamey. But it was really um, intriguing because it was very interactive, very responsive. I mean, you could you could kill this patient or you could fix them, and right. you had you had to select the correct body part. You know, you had to co- uh, select the correct tool. You had to select the correct action of the tool on the body part, and then you would get a response. And the database was a um, very detailed, you know, in terms of the kinds of reactions that you might get from the patient. So that we created that product for IBM. Then they immediately exited the software business. Okay. <laughs> and that sort of, <laughs> that's what happens when you play with the big boys. Sure. You know, they, they can, they, they can change their strategy fairly suddenly. And if that's your main business, then you're going to be out of luck. And uh, that caught us unawares. And that business basically shut down at that point. Okay. Um, I started a new company called Legacy Interactive. Okay. At that point. And that was, was that the mid-90s, I guess? Yeah. Sure. So. And uh, we then took the, we got the rights back to our emergency room game. Uh, we put it in Walmart, and wouldn't you know it, it was, it sold over a million copies, that game. You know, it, it's funny that you say that, because I'm, I am like 100% sure that I've played that version. Because I was like, I, the IBM version, I was like, no, it's totally different. But I, I totally remember playing that, for sure. That's funny. Well, do you remember if you had any technical problems? Because we had a lot of technical issues with that game. <laughs> I don't really remember, like, uh, that would have been, well, I'm 34, just so we have some context. Um, so I would have been, yeah, like, I, I just remember playing it, like, you know, pretty 
pretty young, right? Like I would have been like, well, 12, 13 at the time. So my memory's uh-huh. a little, but I remember playing that for sure. That Well, that's, that's gratifying. That's cool. That's, <laughs> that's, cool. that's really that. cool. <laughs> No, I mean literally that product. We, I had, I've had people from around the world tell me that, you know, that motivated them to want to become doctors. That's cool. Or somebody wrote that, oh, I, I knew how to save a life, you know, because I played your game. And uh, the thing is, we wrote it in DOS. Oh my God! Oh, wow. And then it was Windows, and you know, trying to port it from sure. DOS to move it from DOS to Windows was a huge endeavor, and uh, it was very hard to do that, but eventually we got it right. And then we made a bunch of uh, children's products from that, uh, that were pet simulations. Yeah. So ZooVet and Pet Pals, you know, they were all sort of based on that same interactive, uh, very, again, very open-ended simulation uh, type of uh, game genre uh, where you really could the, the, the number of permutations and combinations of ways to play is just, you know, basically infinite from the point of view of the user. Sure. So I always, those, those games were great. They launched uh, Legacy Interactive. And um, let's see, what else? Well, so, yeah, so here's another thing, another takeaway. We sort of sequeled it to death. You know, when you have a good thing, sure, it's sure. always good to know when to move on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you no, know, that's when, good advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we must have made, I don't know, five to ten of these versions of ER. And, and in fact, we even created one for uh, emergency medical technicians. Okay. Uh, that I think printed, or Mosby sold for us. And so we had a lot of versions of this style of game. And then, you know, as as what happens, the sales started to decline. And so we're looking around and thinking, well, what should we do next? Mm-hmm. And I was really impressed with the fact that there were a lot of women buying our ER game, our emergency room game. Okay, I, we didn't have great data on it, but I could tell from customer service, you know, issues or just customers who contacted us. And this was around the time that retailers like Walmart and Target just didn't believe that women played computer games. Sure. And in fact, it was, it was even hard to convince them that people played games at home. I mean, as weird as that sounds. Yeah, it was, not, especially nowadays, remember, right? Yeah, exactly. And you'd go to these retailers and they'd be like, oh, nobody played, you know. It's like, no, really, really they will. And women will play these too if you get them the right kind of game. So this was all sort of swirling around in my head, and my husband uh, works. David works for a not was working for a nonprofit at the time. Okay. And nonprofit organization, and they were honoring Dick Wolf. So uh, Dick Wolf, who is the creator of the Law and Order series, among many other TV accomplishments. Sure. And uh, Dick Wolf, I, I ended up sitting next to him, which was just completely serendipitous and we're talking and he asked me what I did. And he just was, he's just a very curious guy. I started out as a marketer uh, at an ad agency and he just loves the latest thing. What's new, you know, tell me about the newest thing. So I'm telling him about what I do. And I said, you know, law and order would these kinds of procedural TV shows. They make a great game. And he looks at me, he goes, okay, let's do it. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh, do, you have, do you have a business card or something? That's awesome. So, yeah, really awesome. So we created the first um, TV drama game, and we ended up making four Law and Orders, um, the ka-ching, you know, that goes in between the the segments yeah. of the show, that ka-ching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was like $10,000 all by itself. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of, ah, <laughs> but, uh, it was, we were able to, um, make a, uh, I think a really good game. It was sort of a, a long form adventure game, the old, the old style, sure. you know, adventure yeah, yeah, game. Totally. And, uh, again, it was hard to get it on the shelves initially, even though it had a brand and I, you know, I said, look, 
guys, women are going to buy this, you know, especially Walmart is very concerned about, well, will women buy this? And I said, they love the show. They're 70% of the audience of the show. They love detective stories. Women love mysteries. They're going to buy this game. And it's a story-based game. You know, it's not arcade. It's They're going to buy this game. So we had a bit of a, a hassle trying to get it on the shelves. We got it on the shelves. It did really well. Sure. Yeah. Really, really well. So that was the start of the next sort of phase of legacy, which was creating branded TV, mostly TV content. Okay, sure. That's um, cool. And that, yeah, yeah. And the, at the same time, what was going on digitally is that there were, there was, uh, you know, companies like Big Fish Games were coming online. Yeah. And uh, that was, of course, very female-oriented. The style of game that they excelled at distributing through their channel was Hidden Object, okay. which, you know, are visual puzzles. They are story-based, and um, they're not as usually, um, it doesn't require as, as much problem-solving as a, a standard adventure game, in my opinion. It's okay. more of a visual experience, and... Therefore, women can sit in front of the TV and do it while they're watching television or something, which is, I think, about half, the way half of them <laughs> play these games. You know, they're multitasking. Sure. Yeah, yeah, so totally. We started, That's interesting. So we started to make... Mm -hmm. so That's, we started, you were very early on in that. Yes, we were, we were very early on. You know, CSI, that whole series, we actually made one of those games for Ubisoft. Sure. The CSI came came after we started it with Law and Order and some of the other TV shows, and then we were also very quick to jump on this hidden object digital distribution train. Sure. And so we started going after licenses that lend themselves to that distribution method and uh, and game format. And so the next game we made, and this was very funny, when I first started talking to um, NBC about Law and Order, there was nobody at NBC who knew what to do about games. Okay. They had people there who could license other stuff like T-shirts, you know, and coffee cups. Sure. But they didn't have anybody there for interactive. So I'm working with this guy, and he's like, okay, if Dick wants it, whatever. And we, and we did get a very favorable deal with them. And then somebody came in. So this is, what, 15 years ago or more, was uh, Bill Kisbert, who is currently one of the top people at uh, NBC Universal okay. uh, in the games business. And I love Bill. He's just a wonderful man, one of the best guys in our business. And he and I were negotiating for um, another NBC property. And uh, we were negotiating licensing rights. Yeah. So Bill says, Bill says, okay, Ariella, I'll give you this one. I'll give you X if you agree to make a game based on Murder, She Wrote. Okay, sure. And I'm like, Murder, She Wrote? A game based on Murder She Wrote, <laughs> and I had—I this wasn't something I had watched. Okay. And half the people I know watched it, watched it with their grandparents or something. You know, I just had never watched it. Sure. And so I said, "Oh, Angela Lansbury, she's in that, right?" Because yeah. And then he starts to tell me what a vibrant, wonderful license it is, and you know, we can get Angela Lansbury, we can get her likeness. You know, it, this is perfect for your customer base. And, you know, I have learned over the years to listen to licensing experts like Bill. Okay. Because he knows his, he knows what he has and he knows the audience for it. And sure. he knows how to make a successful licensed game. Everything has to line up, you know, from who the target audience is to your distribution channel to the type of game it is. You know, everything lines up perfectly, and then you have a hit. Interesting. But, uh, if any one of those things isn't right, then it'll flop. 
And so we did two versions, uh, both mobile and PC, of uh, Murder, She Wrote. And it really ended up being one of my favorite games to play. I mean, silly. It, it, was, it, was, it was great. Uh, we went from there to do things like uh, Criminal Minds with CBS. We did uh, Psych. We did uh, Twilight Zone. We did Ghost Whisper. Oh, that was uh, popular. Yeah, I can we, imagine. Sure. Did, yeah, that one worked really well with that, those customers. So, um, yeah, there were quite a few um, just in that TV in that TV genre. Oh, Clueless, Mean Girls we did. Um, <laughs> So all of these were, you know, distributed through Big Fish and, uh, and through the retail channel uh, and were, you know, Hollywood branded, which is nice for us because we're based in uh, Los Angeles. Sure. And, and that was sort of the second phase of Legacy Interactive. Okay. Um, I would say we've been through four phases. Okay. Uh, so we've pivoted four times. So that's the second phase. Um, you want to, should I? Yeah, keep going. This phase? is great. This is great. <laughs> I love this. Okay. okay. So uh, what happened with Big Fish? You know, again, the platform changed. Sure. Right? So yeah. between emergency room and law and order, the distribution methods changed uh well not no not distribution it was we needed a new game genre okay and we needed to brand it and between the tv shows and the next phase which was mobile the platform was shifting we were going from pc downloadable to mobile sure and that necessitated also changes in the type of game because we know that not every, you know, game, we all know that games that you like to play on PC may not translate very well yeah. to mobile. Yeah. And uh, we were finding that not only was Big Fish's business was coming sort of under attack because mobile was stealing away their customers. And when they tried to port, you know, all of their hidden object games to even tablets, it's just not that much fun trying yeah. to look for objects on a, a smaller screen. It's miserable. And uh, so we started seeing sales fall off. So we then uh, partnered with a, um, an outside developer in Hungary who had some really innovative match three designs, among other things. It was a sort of match three with physics. Okay. And we embarked. And we embarked on making some games strictly for mobile uh, that, you know, really worked well on that device and uh, launched ourselves in the App Store. And I think like a lot of companies, you know, you don't realize when you change up everything, it's not just you're changing strategies, but you got to changed the company too. Sure. You know, I didn't I didn't really have the right people on staff and I wasn't I just wasn't enamored with the you know going from retail to free to play there's sure <laughs> really that you know the business model it's not just the distribution channel it's not you know through the app store it's not just the change in platform from PC to mobile but it's the way you make money. The yeah, business yeah. model is also different. And, you know, we just didn't have the right team in place. And, uh, of course, it's my, you know, I take full responsibility. But we were never particularly successful in that transition to mobile. Okay. Interesting. Um, you know, we, um, we, we tried some different things. But uh, free-to-play is a very specific design aesthetic. You know, you, that's what you got to know. And it requires you also have people who understand analytics, who understand monetization. You know, you just need a, a whole different team. Yeah, it's almost a different mindset, to, right? It is a different mindset when you start thinking about design. So I'm sure we could have gotten there. Um, but then I started sort of also pivoting to my first love, which were children's products. You know, I had not made any children's products for quite a while. Okay. I think the last one was like Zuvet, and that's how I started in the business. So I, we talked to Crayola, 
and we made four different products for Crayola um, that were uh, almost all of them were create. I mean, actually, all of them except one was a create uh, creativity tool. Okay. And so I was sort of back to my roots. I love these little games. They're so cute. Crayola is such a wonderful brand to work with. They are absolutely beloved by families. And sure. they're, they're very, very, you know, uh, very, very careful about their brand and what it stands for. And so uh, we started pivoting in that direction. And that sort of got us into new technology. Sure. Um, I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the best route in. Uh, usually they say with new tech, you don't need brands. You know, with, with a new platform, you can introduce your own IP and create your own IP. It's a good opportunity for that. But uh, I don't know. I have found increasingly the things are so, our attention is so incredibly scattered that brands just cut through, you know, even even on a new platform, even in you know, uh, a situation like an AR or VR product. And so I decided I wanted to go with Crayola um, and try some new things. So we applied for a grant from, well, it was actually a contest uh, with Google. They put it out there. They said, hey, we're funding some uh, games for our new Tango AR platform. And, uh, and we'll fund partial the development partially and apply. And we applied with uh, our, one of our Crayola games. Okay. And um, they funded, Google awarded us the contract. Very cool. Congrats. That's huge. That's a huge deal, actually. That yeah. was big, like a couple, a few years ago. That was huge, actually. Yeah. So, like, that's yeah, a huge accomplishment. No. I think you're kind of underselling it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I can say that. I don't know how many people applied, but <laughs> well, uh, trust me. Usually, uh, when Google runs a contest, they they get more than uh, they get a ton of uh, applicants. Yeah. yeah, I think they did. Yes, but uh, they were Google was amazing to work with. Um, it's really funny, and and they were just starting. They're thinking about AR and VR too. You know, two years ago. I mean, sure. I've seen such changes in that organization and focus, you know, their laser focus on AR and VR. So we started working with Google. We learned a lot about what the technology is good for, what it's not good for, gameplay patterns that work, don't work. It was a lot of, uh, I mean, we started out that particular game. We pitched it to them as sort of a, you know, coloring book in your room, turn your room into a coloring book. Sure. And um, we started designing that product, and it's like uh, after about three or four months, we had a prototype, and like, ooh, this is not fun, and uh, threw it away. You know, and just said we're going to do something else. So we ended up with Crayola Color Blaster, sure. Which, um, you know, it's, there's there's an arcade portion that's just strictly arcade, and you're it's. Uh, zombies feature are featured in it, but they're also fairies and uh, you know fairies, unicorns, all kinds of uh, creatures. Yeah, yeah. And so um, there's a story mode, and then there's an arcade mode to the game. And we have literally ported that one product to AR Kit and AR Core from from the original Tango version. Cool. And we're in the process of two more ports. Uh, oh, nice. Other AR platforms. So so that was a really good, uh, first of all, learning opportunity. Uh, great to work with Google and and get the first in line for you know all of their technology goodies, which sure. they're very generous sharing with developers. Yes. And it's also then given us a foot in the door with these other companies who are developing, you know, alternative AR platforms. And through that, we've, so, okay, so that, so that would be the AR, VR sort of now we're in this world. Um, is that number three? <laughs> Is that the third transition? <laughs> yeah, three or four, sure. I think so. Yeah. 
Uh, and then I would say hit point is the fourth transition, sure. um, which that's the that's the portion of the world we're in now. It's so it's very funny, as they say, how time becomes compressed. You know, the the uh, the world as the world moves on, you know, time becomes shorter and shorter. So I look at these periods. The first period was probably you know we've been in business almost twenty years, so the first period is probably eight years the next period's probably six years the next period was two years <laughs> so yeah, now totally. you know it's it, the transitions come faster and faster um so now we're in the now i'm in and uh legacy is in the uh, fourth transition and um this started last october okay. i joined uh hit point as president okay um, the people who work with me at Legacy are now all working for HitPoint. So the gotcha. so the company moved wholesale to HitPoint, and um, Legacy still exists. But right now, we're only selling uh, software to Walmart. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, believe it or not, Walmart still does a I wouldn't call it robust anymore. A year ago, it was still robust. It's no longer robust, but it's still a profitable business sure. uh, of selling CD-ROMs to their customers. And these, the CD-ROMs we sell to them, we probably have 10 on the shelves right now at Walmart. Yeah. And the CDs that we sell to them are disc compilations. Um these are to people who just don't want to download games. They like the physical product and they uh, love, you know, mostly hidden object games, but we also sell match three and, you know, some resource management games. And so uh, this is, this is what legacy does. And I legacy is going to continue to do that as long as it remains a profitable business for Walmart. Got you. Um, so that's, that's the legacy side. So I have then moved my uh, mostly business development and business strategy uh, activities to HitPoint as of October and gotcha. working with Paul, Paul Hake, who is the CEO. Um, HitPoint is there about 25 oh. um, people in Western Massachusetts and Greenfield. Very cool. And yeah, and they're just, we, we had worked with uh, HitPoint on four previous products uh, when when before we merged our activities, and uh, I just felt I had such a good feeling about Paul. And the reality is that I didn't want responsibility. I didn't want operational responsibility anymore. Right. Sure. I, I wanted. I, you know, I wanted somebody else to worry about, you know, cash flow. Yeah, <laughs> no, fair enough. I don't blame you at all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like any small business, you know, and, uh, and I was so very impressed with the way Paul managed his studio. And he's just, he's just amazing. And, and I feel like I've learned a lot from him just watching how he operates. So uh, we are working together and we are focused on three areas of business. Okay. Um, the, the first area is the games business, right. uh, which is going very well. Um, we just in December finished a wonderful uh, Facebook instant game okay. uh, based on Star Wars. Very cool. And... Yeah, so that was really fun, uh, and we're working with, um, what should I say, two other Hollywood studios on various games for them. Very cool. Um, yeah, and so and and Paul's team they do uh, a lot of sort of game operations, back end support for Electronic Arts. You know, there he's he's very sort of deeply embedded in the games business. Everything from the back-end server stuff all the way to, you know, front-end and design. Um, so that's, that's one big, you know, pillar of the business. The second part of the business, which I'm not as involved in, but is, you know, just as you might guess, very lucrative, is the casino business. Yeah, I can imagine. So, 
Yes. So Paul, mostly there, is working on server and backend, the more technologically challenging pieces um, and things that relate to real money gaming for uh, European companies. You know, so that's another part of the business that really, I think, exploits um, hit points experience in social platforms and server technologies. So that's the casino business. And then the third pillar is uh, AR and industrial. Interesting. And that is the newest area. And that's probably the area where I'm putting most of my time right now. Sure. Um, It is um, everything from, uh, working with uh, Google and Walgreens to figure out how to help customers navigate to exactly the product that they want on the shelf using AR. Right. Um, you know, that's the type of product in that category. Sure. Um, and then, so we have a couple of projects that I can't actually describe too no, much. That's that fair. Yeah. In, that, in that category. But that is the, so that's, sort of what hit points up to right now. So it, it does definitely feel like a new chapter for me. Again, it's, you know, uh, these are new customers. <laughs> it's a different customer base. You know, sure. These are new challenges, new business challenges. Um, but it's, it's fun. Gosh, I just, I love it so far. That, but, I, but I think that like, just kind of throughout your journey, like you, you've given a lot of good advice, right? Like you've had some ups and downs, some, some good times, some bad times, and, but you've kind of transitioned and kind of pivoted with the industry, right? And you, you right. kind of have to, right? And I think, you know, the people that are scared of change or, or don't want change or try to fight change end up kind of dying off, right? Like, Obviously, mm-hmm. some of the stuff that you guys are doing at Hit Point now didn't even exist three years ago, right? Like, it, like, mm-hmm. and I, and I think the next big and well, tell me your thoughts on this. It, and it, I think the next kind of big technology innovation is going bringing technology back into the physical world, almost to what you just said, where you know you walk into a Walgreens or some store and it takes you to the you know specific band-aids that you need or, or, or like mm-hmm. some sort of like cough syrup or whatever you need, right? Like it just, like I think, or like Amazon just la- the other day launched their like Go store where you just like walk, you scan your phone and you grab whatever you want off the thing or off the shelf and you just walk out and it automatically bills you. Like I think that's kind of the next big wave of technology. It sounds like you would agree with that, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, no, I do agree with it. And that's why for me personally, as fun as some VR experiences are yeah. and have been, uh, I, we just have not chosen to put a lot of effort or energy. Right. We, have a, we have a couple demos in that space, but, you know, and I feel like the VR is not going anywhere, but for at least for the foreseeable future, it feels to me that AR is where the most interesting things are going to happen. And I personally think, uh, you know, the, I can't wait to play the Harry Potter game. Sure. Right. Sure. And the is they are so smart about what they do in the consumer space with mobile devices. And they know that those mobile devices faster than we think are going to be replaced with wearable glasses things sure. that look pretty darn normal. Yeah. But now, have this extra added capability. So they're, you know, they're, they're learning as much as they can in preparation for the day when you're not going to have to have that awkward, you know, hold your, your phone out in front of you yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, while, while you're playing the game and look like a dork. So, you know, they're, they're, they're preparing for that day that's coming and they're learning as much as they can about what what's really fun about these interactions. But where I think the the most immediate opportunity lies is with business and really tying business strategy together with these, you know, AR experiences. So, you know, for example, when you, you think about 
the retail situ the retail space. And, you know, we've been all just amazed at Amazon opening the Amazon Go stores where there are no checkers, you know, and you have all these cameras that are actually they know what you take off the shelf and then you walk out of the store and Amazon, you know, just charges your Prime account for whatever you've picked up. So thinking about how normal retail can both compete with that and then offer more value and flexibility to the customer. Because the customer, they, they want to be able to walk up to the shelf, look for a product. If it's not there, they want to be able to look on their phone and say, okay, order it and touch mm-hmm. their phone and have it delivered or maybe have it, you know, uh, you know, or they'll, they'll want to, they'll do something, they'll order online beforehand, they'll go to the physical store, they'll pick up some things at the physical store, but then other things they've ordered are in their locker right outside of the store that they pick up. You know, they, they just want it any which way sure. and any way that's convenient and any way that works for them. So as we're rethinking these shopping experiences, I, I, and when once we combine that with AI and knowing as much about a customer as Amazon knows about us or Google knows about us, yeah. I mean, imagine you're walking into Saks Fifth Avenue and they identify who I am. They know what I bought last time. They know the designer I like. They can, you know, show me. Now, of course, with Saks, this isn't a good example because Saks customer probably doesn't care about a promotion. But a normal person would care, oh, you bought it last time it cost X, and now this time it costs 20% less. You know, it's it's, uh, you combine that knowledge of the customer with an experience, a digital experience in a physical store, and so that when they go up to the physical shelves, they we not only know where they are standing in the store, we not only know what they're looking at, but now we can show them, superimpose on top of that physical product, oh, here's some additional information. Here's a video about how you'd actually cook that quinoa. Because you know, yep. I always buy it and I never know what to do with it. <laughs> sure, so, sure. You know. Yeah. No, so anyway, so you're right. the notion of merging our physical and uh, you know virtual worlds, and then combining that with knowledge about who we are and our preferences, it's all a little creepy. I understand in terms of privacy, but what is? But and that's an issue. Yeah. But the truth. But the reality is that we can make these shopping experiences so much more personalized customized relevant and and even fun yeah you know there are ways to gamify this which i think we're exploring also so yes that's my opinion on where it's all going no i i think that's that's really interesting and i agree like i like even just being able to like virtually try on clothes or get recommendations based on you know your body type or your height or kind of your style preferences when you go into a store like stuff like that where you're basically saving people time and because i think sometimes like certain shopping experiences um in certain types of stores if you're not comfortable say i'll like the perfect example for me for example is i had to get a suit like a few weeks ago and i know nothing about that stuff like i i have mm-hmm. no clue i like i it almost like gives me anxiety even thinking about it but like, so of course, like I went to this store in town and, you know, I, I got like a girl to help me out and, and pick everything kind of out for me. And I was basically like, here's what I'm going to. I need a suit like you pick it out. I'll put it on and then we'll get it you know, like tailored to me. Right. And it was mm-hmm. great. But like if you could virtually do that kind of at any kind of shopping experience, somebody like myself would love that because if you're like, well, I need something more formal for um, this event or, you know, this thing mm-hmm. and somebody can help you or technology can help you with that riding the latest trends in a city you're potentially going to could be really cool. Right. Where like right. I, I work at a tech startup. So my, my normal daily attire is usually like a hoodie and jeans. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, like dressing up sometimes <laughs> for certain events in other cities, 
you don't know what the style necessarily is or is it right and so just right. breaking that down could be very useful or is one example of how technology could really help people out with that without making them uncomfortable right because sometimes people don't want to ask for help when mm-hmm. when they're when it makes them uncomfortable mm-hmm. well one thing i've been actually pushing for in a project we're working on now is to provide, once we navigate people to a particular department, to provide different filters through which they can look at the items in that department. And so one thing that has always been been interesting to me is something like a heat map. Yeah, Where you can actually see what items other people look at. Interesting. Because I have taste in my toes when it comes to clothing. And so I don't (laughs) trust my own... Like, oh, yeah, I love that Hawaiian print over there. You know, I can't trust my own Interesting. preferences. So I'd much rather see, well, what are other people looking at here in this in this department? And then I'll look at those, too. Or you think about price. You sure. know, I'd love a filter for price. Show me everything under $250 because I'm not even going to look at those other things. Or show me, you know, so that you can actually you could do a couple filters. Sure. You know, I need something that's red that's under, you know, $100 or something. And then you, then it shows you. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of back-end work that's required. You know, it's, we, we had experience in integrating with a, what's called a planogram at Walgreens. So okay. you need to know the inventory. Sure. You know, you need to know where everything is and you need to know everything about those clothes or those items on the grocery shelf. So there is a lot of back-end stuff that has to happen. You know, a lot of these stores don't even have Wi-Fi. Right. So it's, it's you know, we're really at the very, very, very beginning of imagining how this is all going to evolve. But I just think there's some really interesting demos. And I just think people should be testing a lot of different ideas at this point to see what works, what resonates with the customer. No, I I 100% agree with you, but sadly, we're out of time. So let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about uh, you guys and, and any other links you want to mention. Uh, well, if anybody wants to connect on LinkedIn, uh, Ariella Lair on LinkedIn, uh, Paul Hake, H-A-K-E on LinkedIn. And then, of course, we have Hitpoint Studios uh, is the uh, name of our website. And we have more information there about the kinds of projects that we've been working on at Hitpoint. And I'm, I'm also always happy to speak at conferences. I've, I've been doing quite a bit of that. Um, the last two years. So, uh, yeah, just reach out with any questions. Always, always happy to talk, as you can tell. No, that's <laughs> great. I was just going to say, like, we could probably go on for another hour just talking about this stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I only get I only get an hour. So, <laughs> but, well, thank you very much for listening. Yeah. All right. Well, you have a good rest of your day and we'll talk soon. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.